Deuteronomy chapter 33 this evening, our journey through the scriptures. I always think this time of year when we're, there's so many of the Christmas songs that I just wish we could sing all through the year. And uh, But if you grew up on those songs, it is amazing to have just kind of sung them here or there or heard them played in the mall or whatever. And then one day you come to know the Lord. And then he opens all that up. And I mean, because of the witness of the Spirit inside of us, that just is such a joy to be able to sing these things about the Lord and to the Lord. Next Sunday night, we're coming to the end of Deuteronomy this evening. And it's kind of a a nice place to break on things before we begin the book of Joshua, which is an entire different section of the Bible that we're beginning. And kind of because Thanksgiving came so late this year and, you know, things are moving pretty fast these days, I think, for most of us. And and I thought, you know, this Christmas season has the potential to just sweep on by without us really being able to, as a church family, sit down and enjoy it at length a little bit. And so I thought, let's do the Sunday evening Come together next week at 6 o'clock as usual. Have everybody in the sanctuary, the children and the adults and the adults who are children and and, uh, all of us in the room and to just celebrate our Savior in song and and worship and then some time of refreshment afterwards. And so if you come here, attend another church on Sunday mornings and you come here on the Sunday evenings, just be aware we'll be doing that. Of course, you're welcome. Everybody's welcome. But... uh, you'll know just exactly what's happening next week. I, I'll all, uh, any excuse for some hot chocolate or eggnog, I'm, I'm into that. Deuteronomy chapter 33, and actually in chapter 32, we finished at the end of verse uh, 47, as Moses taught the children of Israel this great song, and it was a song that was, Uh, intended to drive home the single great point of the importance of obedience, which is the theme of the book of Deuteronomy. And he put this whole importance of the theme of obedience to song. God really had him do it and gave him the song because putting something to song or to music really makes it easier for us to be able to memorize and to remember. And so this song now has been given to the children of Israel, committed to them, And then we're told, the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 48, that very same day, saying, Go up this mountain of Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, which is modern-day Jordan, across from Jericho, view the land of Canaan, which I give the children of Israel as a possession. Die on the mountain which you ascend and be gathered to your people. I love that image of death for the child of God, even in the Old Testament, it's... It's not annihilation, it's not death, it's not reincarnation, it's not ceasing to exist. For Moses, under that old covenant, it was to be gathered to your people. We don't die, we go home to our larger family. And in the new covenant, because of Christ, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And one of the blessings of, I think, you know, growing older in the Lord and walking with the Lord for a time is... Uh, over time is how many people are there waiting for us tonight that we love as, as much as 
the loved ones that we have around us this evening, and they, they, in our lives today, and they're in heaven this evening, they don't know evening up there at all, and they await that glad reunion. But the beauty of how our God has conquered death for us, and for Moses it was to be gathered to his people, just as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel in the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not howl on me in the midst of the children of Israel, yet you shall see the land before you, though you shall not go there into the land which I am giving to the children of Israel. And so God is going to do all of this in uh, chapter 34, but he tells Moses that this is in his immediate future. And Moses, of course, was not able to lead the children of Israel into uh, the promised land because of his failure at, uh, uh, is it spoken here, of Meribah Kadesh, where he smote the, the rock a second time instead of speaking to the rock a second time. He misrepresented God as angry before the people when God was not angry. And probably more seriously, he, uh, mis, uh, he spoiled an Old Testament type or picture of Jesus because the Bible says, that Jesus is the rock, and that rock that was smitten the first time that brought forth water for the children of Israel, Jesus was indeed to be, be smitten in order to provide us with living water, the life and the Holy Spirit. But he's only to be smitten once, and from then on, he's to be spoken to, not to be struck a second time. He was not to be crucified a second time. And Moses, by striking the rock a second time, spoiled that imagery. Now, I don't think that I don't question God's dealings with Moses. I don't question God's dealings as a habit or as a anything. Uh, he's a lot smarter than me. But I don't think that Moses did something. When you think about Moses being excluded from leading them into the promised land uh, because he lost his temper in that place, uh, you think about. Well, we'll just about all be excluded, right, from about any ministry based on that. But what God was doing is he was, he was driving home the great lesson to all that would desire to represent the Lord in this world, and that is the importance of it and the importance of not misrepresenting him and ruining the imagery or, or the communicating the beauty of Christ that we have the privilege of communicating to the world by living our life in a way that's obedient to what God calls us to do. Additionally, it's interesting, we'll see later, that uh, Moses is not, does not lead them in, into the promised land. And one of the reasons is, is that Moses represents the law in the Old Testament. And uh, when Moses dies, he will die with 20-20 vision. Boy, I've got to deal with envy on that. He's going to die in his full strength. And, and so when, when he dies and he's gathered to his brethren, it's not because his body is failing, it's because his ministry is over. And uh, he's a picture of the law, picture of the strength of the law. The law is healthy, the law is robust, the law is righteous to this day. But the law has a weakness. The law defines what right and wrong is for us, and we are thankful for that, but it does not provide us with the power to obey it. 
It doesn't provide us with the ability to possess the promises that are associated with obedience to the Word. So the law is strong, but the law can't lead a person into the fullness of a Christian life. And that's why Joshua, whose name means Jesus, is the one who will do it in the book of Joshua. And so Moses here is, is given kind of a preview of what's right around the corner for him in chapter 34. Now this is the blessing which Moses, the man of God, blessed uh, the children uh, this, now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. So Moses, the last thing he's going to do prior to his being gathered to his brethren, gathered to his fathers, is he is now in chapter 33 going to pronounce a blessing upon the children of Israel. And it was customary um, in that Jewish culture for a father to impart a blessing to his children before his death. We remember way back in the latter chapters of uh, Genesis when Jacob pronounced a blessing upon each of his twelve sons who ultimately became the twelve uh, tribes of, of Israel. It was completely appropriate here for Moses to pronounce this blessing kind of as a father because he's been a father to the children of Israel for at least 40 years since he's been leading them uh, through the wilderness from the time of their exodus out of Egypt until this day as they're on the plains of Moab immediately opposite of Jericho before the conquest uh, of the land. Now one of the things that's interesting about this to me is that when Jacob pronounced his final blessing before his death over his twelve sons, over the children of Israel, it was a mixture of blessing and exhortation and warning and even some prophecy of some bad stuff that was going to about them and about their future. When Moses takes up the mantle now to bless them immediately before his death, this chapter 33 is nothing but blessing. No exhortation, no warning, no rebuke. It's 100% blessing. Now you put yourself in Moses' shoes. These people have really, really been rough to lead for 40 years. They wanted him dead at times. Now that's one thing to read on a page. It's another thing to be afraid to come to the church office because they're going to kill you when you get there. But that's the deal. They murmured against him. They murmured against his decisions. They complained against him. They threatened to kill him and Aaron. They threatened to go back to, Moses, uh, back to Egypt. I mean, they were one tough group of people to lead. And you think Moses would just be thinking, good riddance, I'm heading to heaven and I'm glad I won't see you till you're perfect. But he doesn't. Right before he's going to go and be gathered to his fathers, his heart is filled with blessing toward these people. He wants nothing but God's best for them. And I think that for anyone to have any kind of longevity in terms of being associated with the body of Christ, and certainly any longevity in Christian service, is you have to become a quick forgiver and a quick forgetter 
related to what happens to you in the course of your, your ministry and to your service. Moses could have gone off just as bitter as a person could be, but he didn't. He went out with a, a desire for their very, very best, a great, great love and concern uh, for them. Now, the introduction of this blessing, he said, the Lord came from Sinai, and he's going to describe the Lord coming on Mount Sinai, delivering the law of Moses to the children of Israel. The Lord came, and he speaks about it in this great poetic language. The Lord came from Sinai, and he dawned on them from Seir. And he shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of his saints. And so apparently, when God came down on Mount Sinai, delivered the law to Moses, he was accompanied by ten thousands of his angels. And so it really must have been something. And from his right hand came a fiery law for them. And then in verse 3, Moses describes the heart of God toward his people. Yes, he loves his people. Isn't that wonderful to think about? I tend to think that God loves my wife, but he's a little iffy on me. So I need passages like this in the Bible to remind me that he loves people like me too. Yes, he loves the people. All his saints are in your hands. Speaking of the safety that we enjoy because he's our God. They sit down at your feet. Speaks of the communion, the access that we have. Communion with God. Everyone receives your words. And talking about the word of God. The privilege of knowing the word of God. And obeying the word of God. And Moses commanded a law for us a heritage of the congregation of Jacob, and he, that is God, was king in Jeshurun, which is another name for Israel, when the leaders of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. And so it's also talking about how God is, was faithful and is faithful to lead his people uh, to victory. And now he begins, formally begins, his blessings upon uh, the different tribes. Let Reuben live and not die nor let his men be few. So, wow, that's an interesting blessing. Now remember, Reuben was one of the two and a half tribes that chose to settle on the east side of the Jordan River. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They settled on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, they, and they were cattle people, and the land was good for cattle. And they said, we don't want to go into the promised land. We'll take this land. This is good cattle land. And it's good cattle land to this day. It's very, very prosperous land in Jordan. It says, we'll settle in here, and, and we'll go in and help you conquer the land, the promised land, but this is where we want to come back and, and settle. And Moses looks at them and realizes that uh, that because they were going to settle on the east side of the Jordan River, that would make them vulnerable to be the first of the tribes that would be hit by any invasion from an outside force. So anyone coming out of Assyria, coming later out of Babylon to attack the land, or the Moabites or the Ammonites or the Amorites, before they could ever get into the promised land and be able to kind of uh, cause havoc there, they'd have to get through these two and a half tribes. So they wanted that land, but they put themselves in a difficult place as a result of it. It, it was a more dangerous place than to actually settle in the promised land. The permissive will of God is much more dangerous than the perfect will of God. 
And so Moses looks at it, though. He doesn't have an axe to grind on this thing. And he just asks God, would you bless them, bless this tribe in the vulnerable place that they've put themselves in, and not only don't let them be wiped out, but cause their numbers uh, to, to prosper, that they would enjoy a, a, a large population. And then he said of, of Judah, Hear, Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. Let his hands be sufficient for him, and may you be a help against his enemies. Now you would expect, because of, we're dealing with the twelve tribes of Israel, that the next mention would be of Simeon, because that was the next oldest son after Reuben, but it's not mentioned there. And it's kind of a fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy concerning Simeon back in Genesis chapter 49. And, and Simeon, ultimately that tribe, was basically absorbed by the tribe of Judah. So he's addressing kind of Judah and Simeon all in the, in the same way. And he, and he speaks to him of, of Judah, Moses does, let his hands be sufficient for him, speaking of battle, and may you be a help against his enemies. May you cause his, his uh, hands to be strong in battle. Would you cause him to be victorious in battle? Now this is interesting because in the conquest of the promised land, it was the tribe of Judah that would always lead in the battles in the conquest. And it's very serious business, uh, the, the, the wars that would take place in the conquest of the land. Judah led the twelve tribes. And so Moses said, let their hands be strong, let them be victorious, make them, them great, uh, great warriors in, in this great cause as they lead the children of Israel. End of Levi, Levi was the priestly tribe uh, of Israel, and they had the responsibility for uh, the spiritual spirituality and the spiritual development of, of the children of Israel in the promised land. And he said of Levi, let your Thummim and your Urim be with your Holy One. All the way through the Bible, it's the Urim and the Thummim. But here we get the Thummim and the Urim. You're just checking to see if you're awake, I guess. I don't know what. Now the Thummim and the Urim were the two stones that were placed in the pocket that was a part of the breastplate of the high priest and it was just the means by which God communicated his will to them under that old covenant and so what Moses is praying for them is that they would have a clear understanding of the will of God and their decision making for the spiritual welfare of, of the nation of Israel one of the greatest things you know sometimes people ask me they'll say pastor what can I uh, pray for you for I said, well, I got a picture of the Lexus I want right here in my pocket. I just let me pull it out right here. Now I say, you want to pray for me? Pray that prayer that Paul prayed in the book of Colossians. And he just prayed for their holiness, and and he and one of the things that and he prayed for them to have the power of the Holy Spirit, and he prayed for them to know the will of God. I'll take that prayer every single time you think of me. Lord, keep them holy. Lord, give them your power. And Lord, give them the wisdom that he needs for all the decisions that he makes. And so that's the, that's the, the, the cry that he, he's, he's got here for him. 
Lord, help them to make decisions that your decisions in order to be that spiritual influence among the nation. He speaks of Levi and he says, whom you tested, God tested at Massa and with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who says of his father and mother, I've not seen them, nor did he acknowledge his brothers or know his own children, for they have observed your word and kept your covenant. And this speaks of the time in those wilderness wanderings where time and time again the children of Israel rebelled against God and what he was doing. And time and time again the tribe of Levi stood up and they stood with God. And even when it was necessary to stand against family to be able to stand with God. You remember when they were worshiping before the golden calf. And God said, who's going to stand with me? And judgment came upon that camp. And the the tribe of Levi came forward and said, we are with you. Even if it means judgment on our very own households, we stand with you, God, and your purposes for this nation. And the Lord remembered it. And, And it was one of the reasons that they had this position of influence among the children of Israel. And they shall teach Moses. It just speaks now, Lord, really give them great influence for you and for spiritual things among your people. They shall teach Jacob, speaking of Israel, your judgments and Israel your law. And they shall put incense before you and a whole burnt sacrifice on your altar. Bless his substance, Lord, and accept the work of his hands. And so bless him, Lord, and all of his sacrifices, all of the things that they do to point uh, your people to you. Strike the loins of those who rise up against him. Now, nobody serves the Lord today faithfully, long-term for the Lord, except that you're going to get enemies as a result of it. And he knew that concerning Levi, and he said, you protect them and their enemies as they would be faithful to you, and of those who hate him, that they rise not again. And then of Benjamin he said, the beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him who shelters him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. And so Moses' prayer for them is that the Lord would uh, provide his personal protection uh, to them. Now that's good. That's a good. Uh, that's a good security system. And Joseph of Joseph, he said, "Blessed of the Lord is his land, with the precious things of heaven, with the dew and the deep, deep lying beneath." And so he's speaking about the portion of the land that Joseph is going to um, inherit in the promised land, and he basically he's going to inherit the section of the promised land that's associated with his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which is all the way up in the north, up in the Galilee region. Very, very fertile land, wonderful land. And so Moses already knows where he's going to end up there, Joseph is. And so he says, you just bless him. And he just wants the tribe of Joseph to be blessed. Bless him with the precious things of heaven, talking about rain, and with dew, talking about moisture, and the deep lying beneath, Lord. I mean, one of the great things that could happen is for you to get a, a, a great piece of land that had plenty of rainfall, wonderful dew, all of that, and then to discover, wow, the land's got a spring on it too. Whoo! Man, it's like, it was like winning a lottery in those days. We don't believe in the lottery around here. But that was, that was a good living uh, on that. And bless him with the precious fruits of the sun, so abundant crops, and with the precious produce of, 
of the months, with the best things of the ancient mountains, with the, everla- the precious things of the everlasting hills. So talking about the hillsides of the Galilee being covered with olive uh, groves and vineyards, with the precious things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. Let the blessing come upon the head of Joseph, on the crown of his head, of him who was separate from his brothers, and his glory like a firstborn bull, and his horns like the horns of the wild ox. Together with them he shall push the peoples to the ends of the earth. And so, Lord, bless him with this prosperity. Bless him also. Give him skill. Give him victory uh, in battle. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim. They are the thousands of Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph who became two of the twelve tribes. And of Zebulun he said... Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out. In other words, when they left the house, God bless them every time they leave the house to go to work. And Issachar, in your tents, bless their home life too. And they shall call the peoples to the mountain, and there they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness. In other words, Moses recognized that Zebulun and Issachar, those two tribes, they would be all the way up in the north of Israel, again up in the Galilee region, and he calls on them to be blessed in being an influence for spirituality among the northern tribes of of Israel. So these this pretty special group of people. They were prosperous, they were hardworking, they were blessed, but they maintained an even higher than normal concern for the things of the Lord among God's people. It's always good to have uh, God's people, and then it's always good to have those people among His people that have an even greater concern for uh, the, the health and the strength of, of God's people. For they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of the treasures hidden in the sand. And so the, both these tribes were located up in the north by the Sea of Galilee. And uh, one of them was located between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. Very, very frutal, fertile area. Frutal area. That's a new word. Hmm? That, don't learn that one. Your learn a word a day program. So, very, very fertile area. And then a lot of, of trade traffic would make its way from the Mediterranean Sea area over into the area of the Sea of Galilee. And so, they would prosper in that way too. And of Gad, he said, Blessed is he who enlarges Gad. He dwells as a lion. He tears the arm and the crown of his head. He provided the first part for himself because a lawgiver's portion was reserved there. He came with the heads of the people. He administered the justice uh, of the Lord and his judgments with Israel. And so uh, this speaks of uh, the fact that this is, again, Gad is one of the two and a half tribes that did not inherit a section of the promised land. They stayed on the uh, Jordanian side of the Jordan River uh, today. And so uh, this speaks of the fact that even though they didn't want to possess a part of the promised land, they were willing to go in with their brethren, fight the battle of conquest bravely with their brethren to conquer the land before they returned home. And Moses takes knowledge of it and asks God's blessing on them for it. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp and he shall leap from Bashan. And uh, this uh, prophecy has to speak of the fact that Dan would originally as a tribe be given a section of the promised land, 
that was down toward Judah or down toward uh, Jerusalem, the southern part of, of Israel. And uh, they would have some difficulty um, defeating the, uh, the uh, Philistines uh, at that time. And so ultimately what they did is they kind of gave up doing that in the, in the south and they jumped up into the northern area. Uh, we know it today as the Golan Heights uh, of Israel. They jumped up into the northern section of Israel known as Bashan and then they settled there as a tribe. And so Moses was asking, he cut, prophetically he knew this was going to happen, ask God's blessing upon, upon their lives. He said, and of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor. I like the word satisfied in the Bible. That's a nice word, isn't it? Not just in the Bible, but in our lives. Satisfied. Wow. Sometimes if I'm in a restaurant, and they'll come by and they'll say, do you want another this or another that or something like that? And, and, I, and I don't say it to be spiritual, but what can I say? <laughs> But I like the word so much, and I don't even, I mean, I don't say it consciously, it's just, just part of the vocabulary. I say, oh, no, thank you, I'm satisfied. I've had more waitresses say, you're what? <laughs> so I never hear anybody say they're satisfied. It's wonderful in this culture, isn't it, to be able to say, oh, no, thank you, I'm satisfied. But not just about another Coke, but about life, about the meaning of life spiritually. So, no, I'm satisfied. O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the west and the south. And of Asher, he said, Asher is most blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers. And so let him be kind of even, you know, know, uh, be looked up to by his brothers and considered a blessing by the other tribes. And let let him dip his foot in oil. It's interesting, this is one of those passages that people look at, you know, that are kind of geologists or whatever, and they look, wait a second, where was the tribe of Asher? There must be oil in the ground under there, because let them dip his foot in oil. So they bring all the machines over there, and they dig. Now, they may find a great oil reserve in the, in the area of Asher. God bless them, I hope they do. But it's probably talking about olive oil. So, which is, what would they have done with oil, however far down in the ground? You know, however many thousands of years ago, things were a little, uh, a little more pressing immediately. Olive oil was what they, what they would settle for. So let him dip his foot in, in uh, oil, the olive oil, the richness of the land. Your sandals shall be uh, iron and bronze. And, and uh, talking about Moses saying, give them uh, strength and victory militarily. And as your days, so shall, so shall your strength be. One of the favorite verses of God's people for thousands of years, the promise that is given to Asher, as your days, so shall your strength be. Isn't it wonderful to realize, it is to me, I know it is to you too, to realize that as I just walk and live just a simple life of obedience to the Lord, just try to do that, just walk with Him, talk with Him along life's narrow way, that Every single day of life that he gives me and he gives you, he's going to give us the strength for that. I I would hate to have like five extra years of life and be shorted out on the strength side from him. He knows how to give us just exactly what we need each and every day that we're facing. He knows how to make our days and our strength 
just a perfect match uh, in our lives. Faithful to do it. Beautiful, beautiful verse. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun. Jeshurun, again, a name for Israel, who rides the heavens to help you. And in his excellency on the clouds, the eternal God is your refuge. Again, he's encouraging them in the Lord. He's our shelter. And then here's another beautiful uh, line from the Word of God. And underneath are the everlasting arms. I love that verse. I love that. That that verse has been a blessing to me so many times. You ever had a time in your Christian life where you felt you're in a free fall? We talk about today where they look at the economy and they're saying, have we hit bottom yet? Have we hit bottom yet? Have we hit bottom yet? It's no fun not knowing where the bottom is. It's It's a miserable kind of trial. Sometimes we can hit something quite apart from an economy or things just in our own personal life. We just feel like it's a free fall. I'm just going to fall and I'm going to splat somewhere at the end of this thing. You never will. You never will. Underneath are the everlasting arms. However far down we fall, always his arms are still under us to support us and to take care of us. It's a beautiful, beautiful verse and maybe a word for one or two of us this evening. And he will thrust out the enemy from before you, speaking of God, and victory once again, and he will say, destroy. And then Israel shall dwell in safety. So the promise of safety from the Lord. Now, safety uh, is, has always been a very valued thing in this fallen world, hasn't it? When you look at Boy, I, I guess if you really wanted to make a lot of money in Modesto in the last 20 years anyway, you'd probably open an alarm system of some kind or security system for homes. You just walk all over the place and you just see these things, and all these houses, you know, security by this, security by that, security by this. I mean, and, and that's not even to say anything about a war, something like that coming into our cities in the United States. So to be able to look and to have God promise through the mouth of Moses that as you just walk with me and you obey me, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to, I'm going to keep you safe. That's a rich promise. And the fountain of Jacob alone in a land of grain and new wine, abundant food and drink, his heavens also shall drop dew. Happier you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you and you shall tread down their high places. So beautiful promises that the Lord gave them through Moses of what the Lord is to his people, what he desires to be to his people, and what their just simple obedience to him allows him to fully be in their lives. And then in chapter 34, Moses went up from the plains of Moab, and the plains of Moab, again, modern-day Jordan, east side of the Jordan River, directly across from from Jericho. So Moses went up from the plains of of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. It's a beautiful picture, really. So Moses goes up now to the top of of Mount Nebo, across uh, across from the city of Jericho, the first city that they're going to uh, conquer in Canaan. And as he begins to climb up that mountain, he's 120 years old, begins to climb up that mountain, 
down, down at the, in the valley there at, at the base, got two to three million people that make up the children of Israel. And that camp is laid out in the shape of a cross. Moses gets up under the direction of the Lord and begins to walk toward that mountain, begins to climb that mountain. And it's the last time these people are going to see Moses. He's been a dad to them. He's been a leader to them. He's been a chastiser to them for 40 years. He's been a lot of things to them for 40 years. And he's never going to come back and he's not going to see them again, not in this life. And so they're watching him. I mean, it's probably a very, very heavy, intense kind of situation as they're walking, watching him go away and we're not going to see Moses again, this side of, of glory. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan and all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, to the south, uh, the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho and the, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. So Moses comes up and he, he gets to the top of Pisgah there at uh, Mount Nebo and he just stands there and he looks out on the promised land. And the description that's given of how he views the promised land is he looks all the way up into the north of the Galilee and he sees all those cedars up there. He sees the forests up there. And his eye begins to go down to the south. He can see all the way across to the Mediterranean Sea. He can see the Sea of Galilee goes all the way down the whole Sea of Galilee, down to the south, the Judean wilderness, and his eyes begin to make their way up to the city of Jericho, the city of palm trees that's right before him. I don't know how long Moses stood there and looked out on the land. It's one of my favorite pictures in all of the Bible. There's a handful of pictures, there's a handful of events in the Bible that I look at and I say, if I was an artist of, of any skill, and I'm not an artist of any skill at all, so don't think if he had skill he could do it. I don't know how to draw a stick man. But if I had the ability to paint a picture and say, all right, I was a master painter, and this is one of the pictures that I would want to have hang in a museum for an ever and ever to God's glory, it would, be one of the, it would be the picture of Moses. I'd catch him on this side, and I'd catch him just looking straight off, out that, off that mountain into the promised land. The thing that the artist would have to capture is his face and his eyes. How long did he take to just look out on that land? He spent 40 years preparing those people to go in and take that land. And just to look out there and just scan it with his face just solid and his eyes just making their way up and down. Beautiful picture. Got to see the land. Couldn't go into the land. So the Lord said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll do the next best thing that I can do, Moses. I'll let you see it. We say, how in the world? I mean, come on. How good was God being to Moses? Moses couldn't go in, and so he said, I'm going to let you see it. I mean, is God taunting Moses? See what you could have had, and now you can't go in and see it? I hope you're happy. No, no, no. 
You know why you can tell that God was blessing Moses in this? Because he gave Moses the supernatural ability to see all the land. You cannot, from Mount Nebo, see all the way to the Mediterranean Sea with the naked eye. It takes a miracle of God. And God gave him the miraculous ability to stare at that land and look at it as close as he wanted to, from the north to the south to the south to the north, from the east to the west, as long as he wanted to, to see that land that God had promised he would give to the descendants of Abraham. And the most that he could do for them was to give, allow them to see it because he couldn't let them go in. Now, the interesting thing with, related to Moses is that he didn't get to go into the land and he is going to die there at, at Mount Pisgah and Mount Nebo. So he's going to die there. Think, boy, he sure did get ripped off. I mean, that was such, anybody could have done that, striking that rock a second time. I have never, ever known the Lord to say no to something in the life of a child of God except that it was in order to say yes to something even better. But at the moment that he's saying no, you just think, there can't be anything better. You're saying, something, you're saying no to something in my life that I will never recover from. You can never make that no better, God. And sometimes the no's in life from God can be that difficult to process and that difficult to accept. But God never says no to his children except that it's in order to do something even greater. And we turn into the pages of the New Testament and we see that Moses ultimately does come into the promised land with the greatest tour guide you could have, Jesus himself with Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. There is a part of the work of the New Covenant. Now you don't get into the Promised Land any better than that. And Moses, when he's there with Elijah and he's there with Jesus, he doesn't have any kind of a beef or anything like that. And he's complaining and all, nope, this is as good, this is the best way to see the land. And later on, I'm convinced that in Revelation chapter 11, when it talks about the two witnesses that are going to be a witness to the nation of Israel during the great tribulation period, we know one of them will be Elijah. And I personally believe that the second one will be Moses because of the description of the miracles that, this, uh, that each of these two prophets are going to be able to do and is the description of the one related to his miracles and, and talking about the plagues and the different things. It's an exact description of what Moses did in Egypt. So I think he has a future plan in Israel and in that land that has to do with God ushering his kingdom in into this world. And so Moses goes up there and can imagine how his eyes just danced from one end to the land to the other. And so the Lord showed it all to him and then the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will cause you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Moses, I'm being faithful to my word. Children of Israel are going to possess this land. 
And so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died. That's the greatest title you can die with. The servant of the Lord. You know why that's the greatest title you can die with? Because it's one of the titles of Jesus. Who came into this world not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you realize that any child of God who dies and ultimately stands before the Lord and does not hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, will have misspent their life. It is, it is the word that if we one day hear it from the Lord, it's not, it has nothing to do with our salvation. We get into heaven on the basis of, of our faith in Christ. But once we stand before the Lord Jesus himself and he says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's the word that is the endorsement upon how we've spent our lives related to the kingdom of God. So Moses, he gets that stamp of approval here. Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. So he died in that place and he, that is God, buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. And so the Lord took and personally buried Moses and, and maybe did it himself. Maybe he used angels to do it under the Lord's direction. But only the Lord knows and only the Lord knew the, the site, of, uh, certainly among men, the site of Moses' burial. Now why in the world would God take Moses, this great symbol of the law, the history of, of the children of Israel, and say, I'm not going to let people bury him. I'm going to bury him myself. Because sure as we're sitting here, they'd build a shrine there. And here is Moses who spent the greatest years of his life warning the children of Israel against idolatry. And the, the temptation would be then to build some kind of an idolatrous shrine to Moses. I mean, it would be the ultimate affront, affront against his ministry and his desire for the children of Israel. So God says, no, I'll bury him and I'll take care of it uh, myself. Otherwise, on any trip to Israel, we'd have to be, you know, fitting in the burial place of Moses as a part of the itinerary. Now we're freed from that. We just point over there, it's Mount Nebo, somewhere out there. It happened. One day we'll see him in, in heaven. So the Lord buried him. Now there's a little bit of a mystery associated with the burial of Moses in that Jude writes in his, his letter, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So for some reason, Satan wanted Moses' body. Now I'm not going to reveal the reason why in this, this study. We have an extra tape, a super-duper tape that will be available out for $450. You can, you can know that. I don't have any idea why. God just gives us, there's some, just gives us that much revelation. There was, there was something about that Satan wanted that body, and, uh, and he was withstood by Michael the archangel. One day we'll find out perhaps why. Moses was 120 years old when he died. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That manna, that's good stuff. <laughs> Apparently, huh? Whew. Now Moses lived, he got his life 
The interesting thing about Moses' life is it breaks up into evenly into three 40-year segments. The first 40 years of his life he spent in Egypt trying to become a somebody, as somebody said. The second 40 years of his life he was herding his father-in-law's sheep, determined to become a nobody. And then he spent the last 40 years of his life demonstrating to the whole world that God can make a somebody out of a nobody. That's his life, 40 years, broken up into those, those segments. And so he had perfect health when he died, and uh, his eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. He was, he was going home because his ministry was over, and the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days, and so the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. Uh, were ended. And so the, the uh, mourning they, uh, of the children of Israel for him and, and the weeping, uh, they knew what was happening, they knew Moses was going to die up there, and so they wept. And uh, very, very often, it isn't until a person dies that people appreciate them. It happens all the time. You go to a, a funeral service or memorial service and inevitably someone will exhort everyone. Would you tell the people you love that you love them now? Send them flowers now! Go ahead, women. You can say amen to that. Yes, all right. Send them too late. Very often it's like that. And very often it's true of a leader. It's not until a leader's dead. Then everyone wants to say great things uh, about him. They, what they could have done is been nicer to him while he was alive. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. God knows how to reward all that. It's interesting that the mourning period that they had for uh, mourning Moses was for 30 days. It was typically uh, under the Old Covenant you would mourn seven days for a loved one. To mourn uh, 30 days was kind of an extraordinary uh, mourning period. In fact, it was uh, the mourning period that was kind of stipulated for the loss of, of someone's parents. And so, in a sense, Moses had been a parent to them for 40 years, and so they give him that, that 30 days of, uh, uh, of mourning in, in recognition of the good kind of father he had been in the hands of the Lord uh, in their life. And so... Uh, so he dies, and they're mourning for him. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. And a leader needs wisdom, and he's following Moses now. For Moses had laid his hands on him, and so the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so God gives Joshua supernatural wisdom to be able to lead two to three million people. Listen, if you're going to lead three people, you need supernatural wisdom. You're going to lead millions of people, you need supernatural wisdom. And God gave it to, to Joshua. He always gives us what we need related to his calling upon our lives. But since then, there was, has not arisen a, in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh before all his servants and in all his land and by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Now one of the things that I like about memorial services is I like the eulogy section of the service. I like everything about it, but I really like the eulogy section. The eulogy is where 
the people come up and they talk about the person that's gone on to be with the Lord. Eulogy means to speak well. So remember, if you're ever going to speak at one of those services, forget about all the bad stuff. That's not a time to bring it up. So it's only for speaking well of the person. But sometimes even if somebody goes to be with the Lord and they're part of this body, and sometimes I don't know them personally. I know them in connection with a fellowship, but I, I don't know them from work and I don't know them from the neighborhood and I don't know them from their friends and their family. And you get a chance to listen to people talk about uh, somebody and talk about this is how they saw things and this is how they treated people and this is what their interests were. And it really fills in the blanks to really understand a person well. And in these last verses, verses 10, 11, and 12, you have the Holy Spirit's eulogy for Moses. There's the Holy Spirit coming in and just saying, you want to know what made this guy great? You want to know what made him so prized in heaven, made him so effective and so fruitful for the kingdom of God and the world? God says, I'll tell you what it was. His intimacy with God. He knew God face to face. That's the kind of relationship that he had with him. Everything about Moses' life, you never read in any of the law or any of this, you never get a sense that Moses was kind of in the ministry and serving the Lord and that was second to his relationship. There's always that sense that his relationship with God was everything to him. He could have cast everything else off and been completely satisfied. But he did all those other things because the God that he had this face-to-face -face relationship with it called him to do it. So the first thing was that intimacy with God. And then the second thing we're told in there, verse 11, was his faithfulness of his witness before Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. He was a man who was careful to realize that he was representing God before an ungodly world. And then in verse 12, there was this whole speaking of his life and all the miracles that he did in the sight of, of Israel. The third thing speaks of the fact that, that he was faithful and consistent in his ministry to God's people. And so you say, you look at it and say, well, how does a person live a life like that? How does a person you know, end up being well-remembered at the end of their life, giving something to somebody to eulogize? It's done the same way. Number one, walk close to God, live a holy life in front of the world. And then number three, be faithful in our service to God's people. That's the Old Testament version of well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. They never appreciated Moses. They never appreciated him from day one to the day he died. Why did he stay faithful? He didn't do it for them. He did it for God. What he did, he did as service, service unto the Lord. So we love people, we care about people, want God's people to be blessed, but our service is done as unto the Lord. And that's the thing that keeps us faithful. 
Because God will ask you and me to do things in our service to Him that you and I would never do for another person. But we will do it for Him. And that's what He calls us to do. So we come to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And it's an interesting transition point at this point. We have finished, for those of you who have been here from Genesis 1-1, I won't ask you to raise your hands. I'll be ashamed there's four of you. I don't know how long it took us to get here, but we've gone through the Pentateuch. You realize what that will do for our understanding of the New Testament? We've been through the law, we've been through the Torah, as the Jews refer to it. We study the life of Moses now. Moses is dead, and now we'll move on with Joshua. God's servants, they come to an end as the old saying goes, but God's work doesn't come to an end. He keeps moving forward. That will be true of our lives too. And so we come to the end of of the law, come to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, come to the end of Moses' life. And a chance now to partake of communion together. What is the theme of the book of Deuteronomy? Obedience. All right, victory. Now the interesting thing is that under the Old Covenant there was a command of God, requirement of God, to be obedient. God is no less demanding of us in the New Covenant to be obedient to His Word. But here's the difference. In the Old Testament, in the keeping of that law and and uh, obedience to that law, it was a, it, it, I, it, I guess the best way that it's been, been put to contrast the two covenants is the old covenant was do, 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 and the new covenant is done, done, done. And the difference is this. Both covenants required obedience, but the superiority, one of the superior things about the new covenant, the new contract or relationship with God based upon the blood of Jesus Christ is that we obey as a response to what Christ has already done for us. And Christ has done so much for us in His death upon the cross, His burial, His resurrection, His forgiveness, His living inside of us, his walking with us, relationship with Him, that we will always have infinitely more to respond to than we could ever use up in terms of a response. So this greater covenant that we have to look back upon Jesus' life, His sacrifice for us, what He means to us today, and say, Lord, as I think about these things, I know the one way that You've given me to bless You and to say thanks is to just live a life of simple obedience to you. To partake of the Lord's Supper really involves three things. It is a retrospect, it is an introspect, and it is a prospect. Is it a time of sitting down this evening and looking back on the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins personally? And to 